Lord, this morning we ask that you'd awaken our hearts, that you'd illumine our minds, magnify your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Then we finally settle in. You know, maybe we settle in with coffee, maybe with tea, maybe with breakfast at the dining room table, maybe in your study in the comfy chair in your home, or maybe at your office. And it's at that moment, my experience is, that we tend to prepare ourselves emotionally to check the news. To check either the print or online editions of the news publications we follow or subscribe to. But the point is, many of us really have to brace ourselves for this moment. Why? Well, one morning we wake to the news of a brutal terrorist attack in which Hamas slaughters innocent women, children, babies, young concert goers who are attending a music festival promoting border peace, all murdered in cold blood. Another morning, it's 18 shot dead, also in cold blood, in just a handful of minutes in a bowling alley in Maine. And we hear these stories again and again and again. And so our hearts rightly cry out. You know, it's exhausting to us. And so they rightly cry out, how long, O Lord? And so our plea that accompanies that as Christians is to cry out, come Lord Jesus. The accompanying cry to how long, O Lord, how long must we endure this? Our hearts are heavy. This is emotionally so difficult. It's it's so hard. It's so exhausting. So we, we say, come Lord Jesus. There are many from within our cultural moment that hear Christians respond with, come Lord Jesus, and And I think I understand why, but there's a misunderstanding of what's meant by it to the point where people say that's an inadequate response. Like Christians who respond with, come Lord Jesus, it's it's uncaring somehow, you know? And, And so it's important to address, like in these moments, like when we're bracing ourselves, when we're checking the news, like why is this our plea? Why do Christians throughout history cry out with John at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Is it a cop-out? Is it a desire to evade responsibility or doing something about the situation? No. I very strongly want to suggest that it is not. And let me give you three reasons. Number one, while certainly there is a calling on our part to protect people in this life, to the best of our abilities, to stand with and for the most vulnerable, to care for the sick, all of that. It is also true that sin is the natural condition of the human heart. And therefore, the first reason we cry, come Lord Jesus, is because death and evil is pervasive and real. They aren't going away anytime soon. They aren't going away by our efforts unless the Lord comes. 
You know, the culture around us really keeps somehow pretending, despite all the data points throughout history to tell us otherwise, that if we just make the right kind of reforms, you know, today's Reformation Sunday, if we just make the right kind of reforms, if we just respond in certain ways, if we just lift people out of certain circumstances, then evil will not be the same reality that we know it to be right now. But again, every single generation throughout human history has attempted to make reforms to change society. And you know what else every single generation throughout human history has done? It's perpetrated terror, murder, wickedness, evil, death, to the extent that we can absolutely demonstrate the Bible's teaching on the human heart is correct. So the first reason we cry, come Lord Jesus, is because death and evil are realities that aren't going away until Jesus comes to put all things to rights. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Okay. Two, while the culture surrounding us doesn't understand, I think, the reality of evil, the concept of evil in particular, and death, they also alternatively, secondly, offer no hope in the world in the midst of evil and death. Like, we regularly see evidences of what I described last week, so we talked through a Christian's response to death. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the first section of John 11 if you missed that. I think it's important. But we regularly see evidences of this idea that death is just the final determiner, that this life is all there is. But there's simultaneously, along with that, a denial of, like, what that means. You know, like a denial of the very real consequences of, of what that of what death means. Like it's an outright denial of this dichotomy between life and death that we see in the scriptures. For instance, at the height of COVID, in this moment in which so many people were worried and confused and frightened and understandably so, because there were so many in hospitals and the ICU, we didn't really know a lot at this point. Many people were dying. And a tweet went viral of an ICU nurse a healthcare worker who is extremely talented. I mean, obviously talented as a healthcare worker, obviously talented musically as well. And he sang this song that he dedicated for all the victims of COVID and all the families of victims, all the families of people in the ICU, and for all of his coworkers who were exhausted and tired and putting in all these extra hours, putting themselves on the line. What was the song? You know, what was the song that represented his desire to infuse hope? Is Imagine by John Lennon. He began singing, you know. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That's the lyrics, right? And, and there, of course, there's a reason that some who reject Christian theism would find this song to an extent comforting, and we could talk about that at a different time, but the broader point is, this is the message that we have for dying people? That we sing for those who are dying and suffering? This is the message of the world? Imagine there's no heaven, no life, no hope beyond the grave. And so Christians cry out, come Lord Jesus, because they hold out true hope for a world that has none. Secondly, right? And that's precisely because of number three who Jesus is, as we'll see in the text this morning. We cry out 
Come, Lord Jesus, because evil and death are real. They aren't going away until Jesus returns. We cry out, come, Lord Jesus, because that cry, cry holds out like this rock-solid, irreducible hope to a world that has none, and we're able to do that. The reason that cry offers this kind of hope is because of who Jesus is, because of precisely who he tells us he is. It's not just some like vain superstition. We're not talking about Santa Claus here. We're not talking about some kind of you know, fingers crossed theology where it's like, I'm really hoping that at the end of this, there's something else. There's this rock solid, irreducible glory. Why? Because it's found in, the, in a person, a person of Jesus Christ. It's found in who Jesus tells us he is in the passage that we're looking at right now. So while the culture denies that dichotomy between life and death, and it does, this text amplifies it. You know, the culture denies it, minimizes the di dichotomy. The text amplifies that dichotomy, which is why I find it so useful to approach the text by highlighting the obvious dichotomies throughout. So this morning, we're going to see four pairs that point us to Christ, if you're taking notes today. Four pairs that point us to Christ, starting in verse 17. Look there with me now. When Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. All right, so um, this is a, a detail that, he alluded to, that John alluded to last week in terms of the number of days it took Jesus to respond to this request. So he's already addressed this once. He addresses it here for a second time, and he's actually going to address it. He's going to say this exact same fact, this reality. He had already been in the tomb four days later on. So this is going to be repeated three times, a super important detail that we'll get into together now and, and later, okay? So verse 18, Bethany was, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So look at this first clause. Again, like now when Jesus came. So to understand what's happening here, we need to back up again. We need to remember where Jesus is coming from. We need to go back to last week, some of which I said we would have to return to because we didn't have time. And when we do that, when we do that work of going back and looking at the context, we see our first contrasting pair in the story. So four pairs that point us to Christ. Number one, we see two places in the same story. Two places in the same story, Botanea and Bethany. Botanea and Bethany. So the text begins by outlining these two locations. Super significant, super important for you to understand these two places if you're going to also understand the situation as it's unfolding here in its entirety. Okay, so um, let's look back. If you have your Bibles, just a page back, right? So we're going to look chapter 10 starting in verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but Jesus escaped from their hands. Okay, that's happening in the region of Bethany, where Lazarus, Mary, Martha is, this region close to Jerusalem. They seek to arrest him. They seek to stone him, right? Okay. Then, verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where he'd been baptizing at the first. There he remained. There's Botanaeus. So a little review here of what we've seen the last two weeks. Jesus escapes from this attempted arrest close to Jerusalem. He goes away across the Jordan to the place where it says John had been baptizing at first. 
This is most likely, the, this is the community of Batanea. Most likely it's the Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. If you remember, we, we saw that earlier on. This is the region where John was baptizing. So this is in a lot of ways a tale of two Bethanies. The Bethany where Lazarus lived and his sisters Mary and Martha, just two miles from Jerusalem. And this Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, in order to not get confused, we'll call it Batanea. This is where John had been baptizing people earlier. So earlier in John 1, we read that John the Baptist's calling, if you remember, was to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry, was to point people to Jesus, point people to Christ. Right? So if in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So this is John the Baptist pointing people to Jesus, saying, he's going to increase, I need to decrease. And then we get to these passages, this passage, the end of chapter 10, look at verses 41 to 42 again. We see many people are believing in Jesus, and they're saying exactly what John was saying he was hoping for. They're saying, John did no sign, so John's decreasing. Like, John did no sign, but everything he said about this man is true. Like, here we have the one that he was pointing us to, John's ministry is bearing fruit. So Jesus is in Botanea, and as we've seen, there's significant response to him there. Like, things are going very, very well. But there's another community in our story that's dealing with a significant issue, which we read about starting last week, and which we see right away in verse 17 this morning. Super significant issue. It's the community of Bethany, this one on the east side of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem. John describes it as the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And we learned that Lazarus, their brother, had fallen ill. The illness appeared very serious. This is why they sent word to Jesus, because the idea is come here as quickly as you can, right? Um, we took note concerning them, the relationship that they have. This is a family that's very, very close to Jesus. Jesus loved Lazarus. The text tells us that twice, right? And he also loved Martha and Mary, Okay? And so at least one of the points of the distinction between Botanea and Bethany that we looked at together last week is if the illness in Bethany is so serious and if the family in Bethany is so loved, then what on earth is Jesus still doing in Botanea in this region on the other side of the Jordan that's a two days journey or a day and a half journey? What's he still doing there? And the answer for that, as we saw, is the love of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Like the text told us that straight out. We'll get a stronger sense of why that's the case over the next couple of weeks. I don't want to spoil the story. We're going to hang out here in John 11 a bit because I think that's really worth it. But um, what we do know at this point is that Jesus tells his disciples by st that his staying in Botanea is directly motivated by his love for this family in Bethany. So we see that. That's how this is playing out. Right? Um, but there's more to it than that. <laughs> because this text also shows us why Jesus came. I'm not just talking about why he came to Bethany. I'm saying, like, why Jesus came into this world. Why he came here. Why the Word put on flesh to dwell among us. Like, why the incarnation? This text really gets into the heart of a lot of that matter. And it really gets into the heart of um, even more than that. Think. Think about the circumstances Jesus had in Botanea, and now the circumstances he finds in Bethany. You know, and we see this right away. You know, you see what he finds in Bethany. The text begins with this, you know, as you look at, at verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. So upon arrival, he's dealing with death. He's dealing with pain. 
He's dealing with grief. He's dealing with those who, as we'll see next week, will rebuke him. You know, who think he should have gotten there more quickly than he did. Those who are judging, those who are mocking, you know. Um, so as he arrives, he arrives to something much different. We see it right away. And so we see, like, do you see the difference? Like, in one place, people are confessing faith. People are responding to his ministry. Verses 41 to 42. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. Everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So, like, his popularity is growing in Botnea, you know? People are rallying around him. It's a joyful description at the end of chapter 10. But then in Bethany, people are mourning, right? In Bethany, people are grieving that he wasn't there earlier. They're upset. In the region of Botnea, people celebrated him. In the region of Bethany, people had just attempted to stone him and arrest him. Okay. And so on the one hand, we ask, just as we did last week, why on earth did Jesus stay in Botnea when someone he loved was sick, right, given the circumstances? And the answer is, in some sense we don't understand yet, because we don't know what happens yet, uh, his love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But on the other hand, we could ask just as easily, why on earth would he leave Botnea to go to Bethany? That's exactly what the disciples asked. I said last week it's a totally justifiable question. And the answer is his love for Lazarus and Martha and Mary and the rest of us, all of us. Because really this really gets to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter why it came. The heart of the matter of verse 4 from last week. Look at verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. We're going to keep coming back to that verse. It's really a key to understanding the text. But Jesus, see, he doesn't seek a glory. Like, what kind of glory does Jesus seek? He doesn't seek a glory that's somehow independent from his Father, you know, or his Father's will for him. That's the kind of glory we saw it in Genesis 3. You know, a kind of glory that was independent of the Father. Jesus seeks it, does not seek a, an independent glory. You know, if he sought that kind of glory, that kind of popularity or celebration, the kind of glory that like a Greek deity would seek, one who would come to be celebrated and to be popular, if he came to be lauded by mankind to seek as much popularity as possible, there's no way he comes to Bethany until it all kind of blows over. But if he came for those reasons, there's no way mankind could have hope in life either. We're going to see that, that kind of irony more and more, that if he saves himself, the rest of us are in a lot of trouble. This distinction between Botany and Bethany shows us the reason he came. He goes to the place where there's certain death. You know? He's in this place of, like, honor, but he leaves it to go to this place of certain death. Right? This is the ultimate expression. Jesus leaving his father, leaving this place of glory, and coming into this world. He does that here. He leaves this place where he's being honored. He goes to the place where there's certain death. He goes to the place where his own death is drawing near. His own death is imminent. Precisely because it's through his death that we might have life. You know, I said that our third point from last week was going to be the central theme for this week. He came to die. He came not to gain in popularity, but to take on wrath. You know? Think about that. He came not to, like, gain popularity and, like, celebration. He came to take on his father's wrath for those people who were trying to stone him. For all of us. 
So the setting, right? Lazarus has been dead four days. He, he, he enters into that. The state, this is a statement he'll repeat again later for reasons that we discussed briefly last week, and we'll get to it again in weeks following. But again, there's this popular Jewish belief during this time. Jesus does not uh, subscribe to it at all. But there's this popular Jewish understanding that um, after death, the, whole, the soul would hover around the body for the first two days. You know, stay close, seeking an opportunity to maybe re-enter. But on the third day, because this is usually when decay would begin, when the smell would start, when, you know, and when decay would start, the soul would recognize irreparable damage to the body and it would depart. So the idea is day two is done, day three is finished, we're on day four. So this is certain death. It's an important detail moving forward because the point is death has occurred. Death is a reality. It's irreparable in this case by any human intervention. Nobody's doing CPR on Lazarus at this point. Okay. So Jews from Jerusalem have come out to mourn him. This means that Jesus is far more exposed, again, to the ire of the religious leaders, to the growing animosity against him. It's entirely a different scene than what he was just experiencing in Botanea. So that's what brings us to the next dichotomy in the text, because it's here that we move from these two communities in the same story to now two reactions from the same source, grief and faith. Two reactions from the same source, grief and faith, because Martha here comes to Jesus and she says this in verses 21 to 22. Look there with me. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't think Martha is rebuking Jesus here. I think Mary's response to Jesus, as we'll see in weeks ahead, is far more of a rebuke of Christ. But I don't see that here in this text. We obviously see grief. You know, like, um, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's in part an expression of grief. Her brother's dead, but we also see faith. We see faith in that statement. And we don't just see faith that if Jesus came earlier, her brother wouldn't have died, although she does appear to have confidence in that. But we also see faith, confidence, trust in Jesus himself. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Like even now, even in the midst of the circumstances, even in the midst of the grief, even in the midst of the pain, there's faith, confidence, trust in Jesus and in his unique, ability, unique relationship with God, the Father. And so Jesus tells her in verse 22, 23, sorry, your brother will rise again. And Martha understandably responds saying, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So this is, we, we addressed it last week, we'll keep addressing it as we go through John, but this is the standard Jewish belief of the day. There was no concept from within a first century Jewish worldview of someone resurrecting in this life. The concept of resurrection was a future event at the end of days, not something now, not something in this side of eternity. So that's not something anyone's expecting, and it's not something anyone would have thought to make up about the Messiah, right? So we'll get to that as we go forward. But, you know, this, this could be, this response by Jesus, your brother will rise again, you know, like, Jesus' statement here could have easily been taken as nothing, and I think this is how Martha takes it, as nothing 
more than an attempt to console her by pointing to biblical truth. Something that a lot of us do when we've had friends or loved ones pass and others approach us and they attempt to console. We attempt to console one another in the midst of loss with biblical truth, right? For example, when the reformer Martin Luther lost his daughter Magdalena, he and the rest of the family were obviously overcome with grief. But through his tears, he did his best to console the rest of the family with the hope of the gospel. And he declared th- these words with confidence over a coffin that was in their living room on their table. He said, she will rise again at the last day. In other words, as we saw last week, death will not have the last word. At the last day, the resurrection will take place. God's people will be restored to bodily life. That's the general sense of the way that Martha understands Jesus talking here, although Luther had a much more developed understanding of what that means, being on the other side of the cross and resurrection, right? That's the general sense, and Jesus certainly shares with her this conviction that our bodily resurrection at the last day will come about. He repeatedly has mentioned this in in John's gospel account, but he's He's also saying so much more to her here in chapter 11. It's interesting because here we see the help that this prayer that I talked about that sometimes can be scorned, but that I think is valuable, the help that this plea, come Lord Jesus, can offer us in our grief, in our exhaustion, in our lack of understanding. Because we feel this dichotomy. I do. We grieve loss. We grieve hardship. We grieve suffering. We grieve the unknown. And yet because of God's grace, he very much has the capacity to inject our hearts with hope and faith in his goodness and ultimate purpose, right? This dichotomy between grief and and faith. And so this is important because, you know, this is not what Jesus is about to tell her demonstrates, right? This is not just some blind faith in a future resurrection, nor is it some vague faith in some form of an afterlife. What I call, the, you know, the fingers crossed theology, where, and I think that's where a lot of people are at. They're like, oh yeah, I'm hoping for a better place, man, that at the end of all this, there's got to be something more. This isn't just some vague hope in some afterlife. The hope that Jesus is holding out is far more specific, far more personal, and because of those reasons, it's far more hopeful than we could ever imagine, ever imagine. And it's here that we see our third pair. So we see two communities in the same story, Botany and Bethany, in this like a sense of why he came for us. Two reactions from the same source that because he came, yes, even though we grieve, we can have faith. But now we see we see two certainties, two certainties in the same statement, the resurrection and the life. Because what does Jesus tell her? Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There are two certainties that Jesus really focuses on in this this I am statement. Both of them are crucial for us to understand, okay? First, Jesus says, he says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. So he so lovingly and graciously diverts Martha's attention away from this, like, abstract, generalized belief in a resurrection 
that won't take place until the last day, to this personalized belief in the resurrection that's standing right in front of her. He's right there. He is the resurrection. The personal resurrection right there in front of her begins now. And more than that, He's the one, he's not just the one who provides resurrection, he is the resurrection which makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. Jesus explains this first certainty. The way this kind of works grammatically is like you have I'm the resurrection and the life and then you have two clauses that follow. The first one is an explanation of the first statement, I'm the resurrection. The second clause explains the second statement. So he explains I'm the resurrection with the first clause that follows the sentence. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The one who believes in Jesus will come to life again even though he dies. Yes, our bodies will die short of Christ's return in our time. Our bodies will die. We will pass away. But whoever believes in Christ, though we die, yet shall we live. We shall be raised in part because, we're going to come back to it, but in part because Jesus has the power to do it. It's rooted in, you know, like, Christ has the power to do it. It's rooted in something more than just a vain hope and something we could ever try to accomplish because we know we can't, which is why you find such hopelessness in the wider world. It's rooted in something that Jesus has already accomplished, but it's more than that, you guys. It's rooted not just in what he's done. It's rooted in who he is. And because it's rooted in who he is, it changes everything. Uh, as one of my favorite theologians, chairman of our elder board, Pete Johnson, writes so well for us, I am the bread. I am the light. I am from above. I am not of this world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. These are all good and wonderful. But I am the resurrection has something none of these others have. It has to, in it, it has to it an ultimate reversal of the curse. Of all the ramifications of Genesis 3, death is the one that really matters. And Jesus not only reverses the real and final curse of death, he shows that he reverses all the other causes of the fall, and he doesn't just reverse them by causing us to be resurrected. He is the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just an event that will happen to us in the future that Christ by his work has caused to happen. He is that resurrection. In other words, and listen to this, we will not be raised to be like us. We will be raised to be like him. And it's like, take that, John Lennon, you know? <laughs> we will not be raised to be like us. We will be raised to be like him. You know, this makes all the difference in the world. If we were raised to be like us, everything would just go back to the baseline of evil and wickedness and death post-resurrection. Still on display, but because he is the resurrection, we'll be raised not to be like us. We'll be raised to be like him forever, forever. But how do we attain this kind of resurrection, one that's not raised to be like us, one that's transformative, as we'll see here in a minute? Well, Jesus explains this for us in the, the next clause, right? He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. So the second clause found in verse 26 kind of unpacks this life for us. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me. What does that mean? Lives and believes. Well, it can't mean everyone who just has a pulse and believes in me, right? Like everyone who's alive and believes in me. So 
What does Jesus mean? I think he's talking about the characteristic of the life that Jesus gives, like the kind of life that Jesus offers and holds out to us. Saving life, yes. Eternal life, yes. I mean, we talk about it all the time, and it's very important and very true. I think the concept here, though, is not, not us being raised. It's not being raised to be like us, but being raised to be like him. That's the concept here. It's like eternal life, yes. Saving life, yes. But the life of God, the life of the kingdom, a different kind of life, you know? Everyone with that kind of life and beliefs will never die. Now, you might say, well, of course, like you can't have that kind of life apart from believing, so isn't Jesus just being unnecessarily repetitive? No, he's not. This is, he's not. He's not. This is really important. This first part lives, so they both emphasize, lives and believes. They emphasize something different, interrelated, crucial. Various commentators have kind of helped me shape this. The first part, lives, emphasizes the change a person must experience. The change a person must experience, yes, through the power of God at work in them, through his grace and mercy, through his sheer grace at the cross, through his spirit at work. But it lives is like, it's, it's the life of God. The change a person must experience through the power of God at work. He must have the life of God in him brought about by the spirit of God. The second part, believes, speaks then to the stance a person must take. Again, through the power of God at work in us, through his grace and mercy at work in us, speaks to the stance a person must take. Through the power of God at work, he must complete, he must have complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so for those who have received this resurrected life, not only will we experience a bodily resurrection, it's true, but not only does that happen, but this text is clear that in some sense we will never really die. You know? Like, yes, again, apart from Christ's return in our time, our bodies will die, but there is a sense in which we won't. Like, there's this repeated promise throughout this gospel. The the Apostle Paul echoes it, right? To be absent from the body is just to be present with the Lord. You go on living with Christ. John says the same thing. Jesus says the same thing in John's account earlier. Remember chapter 8, verse 51? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And of course, this has massive implications for us. We need to ask each other, does this kind of resurrection life, this kingdom life, the life of God, the kingdom norms that Jesus unpacks for us in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, like this kind of resurrected life and all that it embodies, all the implications of gospel, does it mark your life? Do you have the life of God in you? Have you come to a place where you understand with your mind and where you believe with your heart that you can do nothing but put complete faith in Christ to do for you what you can't do for yourself? Like, or do you still think in some kind of vain hope kind of way that you can actually have a say in your eternal future that you can do something that would alter the course of your spiritual life with an almighty God? Do you believe that his cross has the power to save you, you know? Not just like power 98% of the way, 95% of the way, I'll do the other 2%, 5%, whatever. But do you believe that his cross has the power to save all of you because that's what you completely need, you know? This is why Jesus ends this statement about himself in verse 26 by asking Martha a question. Like, this should prompt questions for the, for the believer, 
and for the non-believer, for those who come and they're not sure what to think as they read this about Jesus. So he asks, do you believe this? And when he asks that, he's not asking, do you believe I can raise Lazarus right now? She's not expecting that. Nobody is. Nobody's thinking that's what he's saying, right? He's asking, do you believe me? Like, are you able to place your faith in me as the resurrection and the life, a personal faith in the one who has power over death, power over everything, power over all these circumstances, power over grief, power over everything, because I'm coming to make all things, putting all things to rights. Her response in verse 27 is, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. And it's in this response, it's in his question, that we see this final dichotomy in the text, which is two possible responses, my apologies for it being so low on the screen, belief or rejection. Two possible responses, belief or rejection, if you're taking notes. Jesus has spoken. He's told us about himself. He's described who he is and what he's come to do. Do you believe this, Martha? Like, we, we could reject or we could believe. We're faced with the same dichotomy this morning. This is the point. This is the point that John keeps drawing out, and there's a reason he keeps drawing it out. It's because his readers, you know, um, skeptical but spiritually seeking, interested, curious Greeks, God-fearing Greeks and Jews spread throughout Asia Minor, they're faced with the same dichotomy. That's the point John keeps drawing out here. Either we gather and hear the testimony of Christ proclaimed and we're outraged by it. We don't believe in Jesus. We don't trust him. We think we can save ourselves. We'd rather find comfort in a song about how this life is all there is and so we're living for today. Everything that we find is in the here and now. Or we believe, we trust. We trust in the one who is the resurrection. We trust in the one who has been resurrected. We trust that he has done for us on the cross what we needed, what we could never do for ourselves, defeating sin. And through his resurrection power, he's defeated death. That he invites us into a resurrection life that embodies him, right? (laughs) That, That begins now, goes on forever, raised not to be like us, but rather to be like him. Friends, this testimony is true. Put your faith in him. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, put your faith in him. And don't leave this morning until you talk to somebody and tell them, I need Christ. And for those of you who are here this morning and you do believe, there's more questions like, to what extent is it changing you? Do you see evidence of the life of God, the kingdom of God, this kind of resurrection life in your life? Has the spirit of God worked in such a way that Now you not only believe, but you live as though you believe it. Like, is your life marked by joy? And I can tell you that all of us, right, we we can all ask ourselves those questions and we can say like, man, not perfectly. There are days that I do not remember. There are days when my life is not marked with joy as it should be. There are days where I throw these spiritual temper tantrums and tell the Lord that this is not what I signed up for, you know. And it's more than a temper tantrum. It's like life is hard. Later on in Martin Luther's life, it's Reformation Sunday. Uh, Illustrations are exclusively (laughs) Luther-based. Later on in Martin Luther's life, he was stricken by grief to the point where it led to a deep despair. 
And I think it's, it's helpful for us to, to read history for this very reason because I think like we can think when we're going through seasons of grief and despair and doubt, we can think like there's something wrong with me, you know. Um, Luther is very real. <laughs> it's very, um, you can relate, very relatable. And this despair for Luther stretched on for weeks. And it got to the point where it's like, and, it, and it, this can happen, you know. There have been seasons in my life where I've had moments of despair, moments of doubt, moments of depression. And it can happen where it's like you're experiencing that despair to the point where like you're really not able to care for people in your life who need you to care for them. And that's happening in, that was happening in Luther's life. Like he's just unable to care for people. And so one morning his wife came downstairs dressed in traditional black clothes that one would wear to a funeral, clothes that you would traditionally wear if you were in mourning. Luther was startled by this. So he understandably asked, who died? Catherine replied saying, God did. Luther was outraged beside himself. And he said, why do you speak such foolishness? And she responded, God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. Now listen, she wasn't condemning, you know, like, she wasn't talking there about a lack of happiness in some general sense. She wasn't condemning the reality we go through moments of depression and doubt, but she did have an understanding of, of the Gospels. She did have an understanding of what the narrative this morning is driving at. She rightly knew that the Gospel comes with transformative properties, a new life, a deep and satisfying joy, even in the midst of group, like very real grief that finds its source in who Jesus is and what he's done. And the question is, do we live like this? And the answer is, obviously, not all the time. Christians, like, fail at this. We, 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 we need to grow in this. But the, the answer is not, like, creating some kind of law of be more joyful, you know, like, be, be less despairing, okay? The answer is the gospel. The answer is reminding ourselves of the thing that we forget, like, do we at times live our lives as though we've forgotten the truth that Jesus lives? Yes. So what's the antidote? Jesus lives. He's risen. And that gives us this injection of hope, you know. He gives us this resurrection life by grace through faith in what he's done for us. The life Jesus gives will never end. Those who believe will be raised into this newness of life. That's the hope we hold out. So we sing, of course we say, come Lord Jesus. Of course we do in the midst of our grief and suffering and in the midst of reading chaos and in the midst of emotional exhaustion. Of course we say that. He holds out this kind of hope. May we receive it by grace. May we, may we walk according to it. May it lead to the kind of deep and hopeful joy that Jesus shows us and will continue to show us as we continue on in chapter 11. Let's pray. God, in moments when we feel far from you, in moments where there feels like there's a cloud in moments where we look around in this world and we don't know, we don't know how to move forward. It's unclear how to live in the broken world around us, how to engage, Lord, um, because of all the evil, because of the suffering. Or would you give us a reminder of the hope that you give us, hope that you hold out, the hope that is you, Lord, would you remind us of this together to the degree that we can walk by a kind of faith that
brings us real joy in the midst of suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.